Hello and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall podcast, episode 12, The Fall of Burr. When Aaron Burr left the vice presidency in early 1805, he was out of a job, his finances were in tatters, and his political prospects were in even worse shape. His humiliating defeat in the governor's race of 1804 underscored the breach that had opened between Burr and the dominant Jeffersonian wing of the Democratic-Republican Party. The tragic duel in Weehawken, New Jersey, ensured that Burr would, forever after, be known as the man who killed Alexander Hamilton. In a personal blow, Burr's ever-mounting debts meant that his beloved Richmond Hill estate was auctioned off to creditors at a bargain rate. He was now truly a man without a home, both politically and literally. And yet, for all this, Burr's story is not quite complete. He lived for another three decades after leaving the vice presidency. Some of his most controversial and mysterious episodes still lay ahead of him. This is meant to be a uh, quick bonus episode to give a summary of Burr's later years. This story takes us pretty far afield from Tammany Hall, so we'll move at a pretty jaunty pace. Still, we've spent quite a lot of time with Aaron Burr, and I feel like giving him a proper send-off. Burr had long been fascinated by America's expanding western frontier. While in the Senate, he had been a vocal supporter of Tennessee's admission to the Union. Like so many leading figures in the early Republic, Burr hoped to make a fortune through land speculation in the West. So it should come as no surprise that Burr's focus turned to the West upon leaving the vice presidency. As he wrote to his son-in-law, quote, In New York I am to be disenfranchised, in New Jersey hanged. Having substantial objections to both, I shall not, for the present, hazard either, but seek another country. He found that other country, not overseas, but on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains. Burr was not the only one with this thought. Matthew Lyon, a fiery former congressman from Vermont, had revived his own troubled political career after moving to Kentucky. Now he visited Burr and urged him, quote, to mount his horse the 4th of March and ride through Virginia to Tennessee. Lyon predicted that Burr would be elected to Congress in short order. From there, he would naturally emerge as the de facto spokesman of the West and a strong contender as Speaker of the House. Appealing though Lyon's proposal may have been, Burr was envisioning something far less conventional. For some time, he had been holding clandestine meetings with General James Wilkinson, the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army and, since 1787, a paid secret asset of the Spanish government, known as Agent 13 to his handlers. Despite his ties to Spain, Wilkinson harbored dreams of imperial glory in the Spanish-controlled territories beyond America's borders, Texas, Florida, even Mexico. From his base in the recently purchased Louisiana Territory, the general sent off a flurry of letters to prominent figures across the United States, gauging their interest in a war of Western conquest. Wilkinson found a particularly receptive audience in the outgoing vice president. There is very little extant correspondence between Burr and Wilkinson. These were two highly secretive men and schemers par excellence. Yet, the fragmentary notes we do have offer tantalizing glimpses of their conversations. In one message, 
Wilkinson hoped to meet with Burr on short notice, quote, if it may be done without observation or intrusion. In another, the general invited Burr, quote, to see my maps. It is not hard to picture Burr, so recently humiliated in the political arena, poring over maps of Spain's vast dominions and dreaming of a return to glory as the conqueror of a continent, an American Bonaparte. By the spring of 1805, Burr was ready to set off on a lengthy trip through the American West. For several months, he made his way down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. He met with local notables, including Andrew Jackson of Tennessee, who offered him a warm welcome. When he returned to the East, Burr had every reason to believe that these friendly frontiersmen would form the enthusiastic core of his conquering army. Yet, the plan began to unravel almost as soon as it began. In August 1805, a Federalist newspaper in Philadelphia published a report of Burr's activities. The article was soon reprinted in newspapers across the country, creating a national uproar and stoking suspicions about Burr's plans. Additionally, hopes of winning the support of a foreign power, particularly the British, failed to come to fruition. Under the circumstances, it was no surprise that the ever-slippery Wilkinson began to hedge his bets and showed signs of distancing himself from his co-conspirator. Burr spent most of 1806 in a state of flux, still committed to the scheme even as it came to appear ever less plausible. Burr's desperation was apparent to his closest friends. In the words of John Swartout, an old ally from the Tammany Society, quote, Poor Burr is still wandering. What his ultimate destination will be is uncertain. Undeterred, Burr set off for a second and final trip to the West. By the end of the year, Burr and a ragtag group of men convened at the estate of Harmon Blennerhassett, an Anglo-Irish immigrant who had settled on an island in the Ohio River. Once there, Burr dispatched a coded letter to Wilkinson, informing him that the great undertaking was set to begin. The former vice president and his force made their way in a flotilla downriver towards New Orleans, their numbers steadily diminishing as they went. Only now did the full extent of Wilkinson's treachery become clear. The general had Burr's messengers arrested as soon as they arrived in New Orleans. With Burr's coded letter now in hand, Wilkinson wrote to Jefferson, claiming he had uncovered a treasonous plot to start a war with Spain and detach the western states from the Union. In a marvelous bit of double-dealing, Wilkinson also sent off letters to his Spanish spymasters in Florida and Mexico City, demanding payment for the great service he had just rendered the Spanish crown. Upon receiving Wilkinson's message, Jefferson was apoplectic. The president's distrust of Burr had long since curdled into hatred. He was inclined to believe the worst about his former running mate, and he took Wilkinson's report at face value. Jefferson immediately issued a proclamation denouncing Burr as a traitor and ordered the army to arrest him. Most of Burr's followers surrendered in what is now Mississippi, near the Louisiana border. By this stage, this would-be conquering army was reduced to under a hundred men. Burr made a desperate attempt to flee to safety in Spanish Florida. However, he was apprehended in what is now the state of Alabama. 
in custody, Burr was taken to Richmond, Virginia, where he would stand trial for treason. Jefferson made no secret of his views of the case. In a statement to Congress, the president declared that Burr's, quote, guilt is placed beyond question. John Adams, not one of Burr's great admirers, took issue with this statement. Even if Burr's guilt was, quote, as clear as the noonday sun, the first magistrate ought not to have pronounced it so before a jury had tried him. And it just so happened that the jury, following the lead of one of the great jurists in American history, would frustrate Jefferson's plans for Burr. Chief Justice John Marshall oversaw the proceedings in his capacity as presiding judge in the U.S. Circuit Court in Richmond. By this stage, Marshall was perhaps the last great Federalist left standing on the national stage. He had clashed repeatedly with Jefferson, a distant cousin, over the administration's effort to curtail the judiciary's independence. Marshall had no interest in seeing the president claim a legal victory over a political foe. Critically, the Chief Justice adopted a very strict definition of treason. Though there would be weeks of high-flying oratory from lawyers on both sides, Marshall's decision effectively determined the trial's outcome. The jury had no choice but to acquit Burr on the charge of treason. Though he was a free man, Burr's reputation was destroyed. Newspapers across the country condemned him as a traitor. Even Matthew L. Davis, Burr's closest and most loyal supporter within the Tammany Society, called the Western Adventure, quote, a damned foolish undertaking. A mob of 1,500 greeted Burr in Baltimore as he made his way from Richmond to Philadelphia. They ransacked the home of one of Burr's lawyers, and the former vice president required an armed escort to make his way out of the city. It was clear that Burr had no place in American society. In June 1808, he boarded a ship for England under the pseudonym Mr. Edwards. He remained there for two years, hoping in vain to gain British support for some new venture in the Americas. In his spare time, Burr met with intellectual and cultural notables, including the philosopher Jeremy Bentham. In 1810, U.S. diplomats convinced the British to expel Burr from the country. He spent the next lonely year friendless and nearly destitute. He harbored dreams of striking up some form of alliance with Napoleon. However, the emperor always kept Burr at arm's length. Burr finally returned to the U.S. in 1811. The looming threat of war with Britain made his continued presence in Europe dangerous. No longer facing legal liability for the duel with Hamilton, Burr settled in New York City once again. Though his political career was well and truly dead, Burr did manage to build a successful law practice. However, personal tragedy prevented him from enjoying a peaceful semi-retirement. Word soon reached Burr of the death of his only grandchild, the 10-year-old Aaron Burr Alston. Burr's daughter, Theodosia Burr Alston, was devastated, and both her health and her marriage quickly deteriorated. She decided to spend some time with her father in New York. On December 30, 1812, Theodosia boarded a ship out of Charleston, South Carolina. She never arrived in New York. The vessel, along with everyone on board, was lost at sea. 
Theodosia's disappearance became a sensation. Wild rumors spread that she had been kidnapped by pirates, or had started a new life after washing ashore on some distant coast. Today, most historians believe the ship sank in a storm somewhere off Cape Hatteras. In any event, her father could do little but mourn. For some time, he could be seen pacing along the New York docks, a melancholy figure waiting in vain for any word from the person he loved most in the world. Burr lived for more than two decades after this tragic event. However, by most accounts, he was a shell of his former self. As he wrote to one friend, he now felt, quote, severed from the human race. Other than a half-hearted effort to nominate his old friend Andrew Jackson for the presidency in 1816, Burr stayed out of politics. He remained close to old allies, particularly Davis, Van Ness, and the Swartouts, the core of his little band during his Tammany heyday. From time to time, Burr spoke rather wistfully about his old controversies. James Kent, New York's most respected judge and an old Hamiltonian, once accosted Burr on the street, calling him a scoundrel. Burr merely sighed and responded, quote, The opinions of the learned chancellor are always entitled to the highest consideration. According to one story, Burr read a passage from Lawrence Stern's novel Tristram Shandy, in which a character gently releases a fly out of a window rather than killing it. This caused Burr to comment to a friend, quote, had I read Stern more and Voltaire less, I should have known the world was wide enough for Hamilton and me. In his heart of hearts, however, Burr was not so forgiving. On one remarkable occasion, he agreed to visit the infamous Weehawken dueling ground with a group of young companions. Once there, Burr grew filled with rage as he recounted the events of that day. Quote, his eyes blazed, his voice rose. Evidently, Burr's hatred for Hamilton was not quite a thing of the past. Burr died on September 14, 1836. He was living in a boarding house on Staten Island following the end of a brief and disastrous marriage to a wealthy widow. Burr was buried in his original hometown of Princeton, New Jersey. His simple gravestone reads, Aaron Burr, born February 6, 1756, died September 14, 1836, a colonel in the Army of the Revolution, Vice President of the United States from 1801 to 1805. All right, that just about does it for today. Now that we've finally closed the book on our old friend Aaron Burr, it's time to move on to new and exciting stories from the history of Tammany Hall. In the meantime, please help spread the word by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. Plus, we are fully up and running on Spotify now. Check us out over there if that's something you feel like doing. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the show. <laughs>